kind of uh, good to be here. Um, I do this fairly often. I'm, I'm, I kind of refer to myself as a pinch hitter, so a pastor can have some time off. And um, when I was a pastor, I didn't have someone like myself in the area, so I think I did 51 sermons a year, and it really, you're smart to take some time off. So I wasn't. Um, but one time I pinch hit for a guy named Raul Reese. I don't know if you guys know, heard of Raul. Um, Raul didn't give me any warning. He says, hey man, can you do my study Wednesday night? I thought, okay, what's a study? I thought, okay, 45 people, okay, whatever, whatever a study is. And I showed up and I was wrong. Um, there was 12 or 1,400 people crammed in this room and um, I did the study and when it was over, um, back before it started, I turned to the music guys and I said, how do you end your services? And they said, well, we'll just take over, you know, finish preaching and we'll take over. So they did and they didn't do an altar call. So um, when it was over, um, they sang the last song and everybody left. Well, this guy came up to me and he was drunk, and he wanted to beat me up. And um, you say, well, that's sort of an interesting response to your sermon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I was thinking, this is really interesting. And then, you know, he was just out of control, and um, he wanted to beat me up, because I later figured this out, because he had an alcohol problem, and he had fallen off the wagon, and he felt guilty. So in his background, you had to buy your way back into God. So he went to his neighbor, who wasn't a believer, talked him into coming to church, and then he felt if his neighbor became a Christian, then God would forgive him for falling off the wagon and getting drunk. Except the stupid guest speaker didn't give an altar call, so how can his friend get saved? So he was still lost in his sins, and he was ticked, he was frustrated, and he was drunk, and he was going to you know, try to take me out. And the whole time this is happening, I'm thinking, I love this church. This is church as church should be. And I'm just fascinated, you know, because I knew I could take the guy. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> and I'm standing there, and, and all of a sudden this guy kind of out of my peripheral vision he comes up and he's about 2022 he calms this guy down knows him by name carefully diffuses the whole situation knows that he's got the drinking problem works on him and and i'm sitting there just amazed that a man at 20 to 22 has this amount of grace and skill to serve in the church i was just blown away so impressed well, I had dinner with that 22-year-old many, many, many years later, um, Friday night. And uh, my wife, I took my wife, and we went out up to the mountains, and, and he lives up there now. And so he came over and, and had dinner with us. And we were talking about a lot of things. And then I said, yeah, remember the first day we met? And I said, to this day, I have been impressed with what you did. He said something very interesting to me. He says, you know why that was so easy to, for me to do? I said, why? He says, because that was me. I was taking drugs when I was 10. <coughs> and then he told all the things of going through several, you know, being a, raised in a family that had 
you know, the father died when he was seven. The mother remarried. The, the new man was abusive and beat them many times and mistreated them. And then the na- they, no one was ever home, so he found a neighbor who let him drink beer and drink everything the guy had, and he found another guy who gave him drugs. And at 10, he was doing drugs. And then he found God. And so to see a brother struggling, no problem. Because he saw himself in the man who was struggling. And I shared in the earlier service, when, when I was in high school, I went to a Christian retreat. And uh, it was, you know, I was there. And it was about a 1,000 kids from all over the state of California. It was a big Youth for Christ event. And it was near Christmas time. I always remember this. And um, somehow I got separated from the people from my group. So I, was, I went to the main meeting. And we began to sing. And um, I don't know if you noticed how well I sang. Did you notice? <laughs> you didn't notice at all, did you? That's because I never sang a word. Because I figure you're a nice girl and it's not right to torture people. Okay? I don't really have a very good voice and um, I don't sing all that well and I am shy. And so I was doing what I always do in a service. I wasn't singing. And next to me was this girl who knew all the words and all the hymns, had this great voice and could hit parts and do all those things you guys know how to sing can do. And then she kept looking over me and I wasn't singing and I could just see the, just the, the contempt that poured from her eyes. And she would sing about the, Lord, the glory and the love of God and I had none of it. You know, and I was feeling just smaller and smaller and I thought, what this, you know, thank you. I feel really closer to Jesus sitting next to you. And I think it's, that's when I decided maybe never to date a church girl. <laughs> you say, did you marry a Christian? Yeah. <laughs> but I had different reasons for dating her. Okay? You see, when I went to that church, and almost got beat up by a drunk, and I was pretty excited. And I thought, oh, I like this. By the way, <laughs> there were some really weird things happened too. That church was attracting everything, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it was. And I think they couldn't control it. It was something happened greater than them. But see, in my own life, I began to realize I was much like my friend Kevin. Um, I knew what it, liked, what it was like to be on the outside looking in. Does that make sense? So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. And let me show you where this all comes from. Because, see, when I went to that church and had that encounter with that man, it was resonating with something I had seen before and was deeply, deeply attracted to. So here it goes. Chapter 13, go down to verse 10. And it says, on a Sabbath, but which, you know, in our understanding would be like on a Sunday, a day of worship, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues or one of the churches. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward. Now, if you read enough of the Old Testament, 
you begin to realize, and I'm an Old Testamenter by trade, you begin to realize that the Old Testament um, plays off of words. And Jewish writers do this. They, they, they play off of words. It's very creative how they write. And one of their key word thingies is the words eyes or the verb to see. It dominates a lot of things you read in the Bible. And of course, the New Testament, all the writers are Jewish. So they are unconsciously, Luke unconsciously is writing like a Jew. And so he says, and we should learn to do that because we're reading a Jewish book. We should learn to see what they're doing with this. So it says, and Jesus, when he saw her, we'll see for a Jewish reader, that would immediately click things off. Because see, the words eyes or the verb to see for a Jew are all tied to the concept of perception. So we sang the song, Lift Up Your Eyes to Heaven. Well, that doesn't mean just raise your head. It means, do you perceive the heavenly perspective for your sorrow? Is what's hurting you designed by God? Can we see it from his point of view? And so Jesus saw her he saw her as worthwhile. He, well, she's a loser. She's a bent old woman. How did she get a spirit? What did she play with that opened herself to the satanic world? We don't know, but we know Jesus saw her differently than often we in church see people. And he saw her, and he called her forward. And he said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. And indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler interrupted what Jesus was doing. Of course, you can imagine being there, can't you? If you were a disciple and you were there that that Sabbath day and here comes this visiting guest speaker, this pinch hitter, okay? And he speaks and stops right in the middle of his sermon and goes over and heals this bent-up woman that everybody ignores. And then the pastor, like Pastor John, stands up, wait a minute, what he did was really wrong. This guy's terrible. I don't know why we have let him speak. Which I hope you don't do. And he says, "You, you, you broke the Sabbath. You say, well, how is healing someone breaking the Sabbath? Well, it's not in the Bible. But we we religious people always add things. And one of the things they had added is they somehow thought that maybe exerting the energy it takes to pray would work. Whatever. Sounds stupid to us today. Jesus certainly thought so. And he healed her. And he really got in trouble. He probably didn't preach in that synagogue again. But watch what happens. The Lord said to him, or answered him, You hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or ox from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? 
And when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Now, who is going to kill Jesus? Well, technically, it's the Romans, right? But who put him up and lied that he was committing treason? The religious leadership. So when Jesus ticked them off and called them hypocrites, he's sowing the seeds of his own death. I thought about this. You know what he could have done? He could have walked over to her and said, Sweetheart, I'll see you at sundown when the Sabbath is over. We'll take care of your bent back. He didn't do that, though, did he? He deliberately ticked these people off. He was an interesting guy to work for. Can you imagine being a disciple and getting up every morning and going, wonder what you can do today? And we know, we know he's of God, but man, he does it and he's so weird. Jesus then speaks, and I find this rather interesting because, see, I'm rather intimidated by this, just to be totally honest with you. Um, one of my students, to give you an example of how intimidated I am by all this, um, he um, got back into town. He went to, Niger- um, he went to Kenya, then over to um, uh, Uganda on an APU mission trip. And he got back and he said, Dr. B, can I tell you about all my experiences? I said, sure, you know, let's go meet Edson. We'll meet at, you know, we found a place where it was halfway between us and we met for coffee. And then Edson um, got over there with nine other APU college students. And when they got there, the people says, well, thank you for coming. Why don't you teach in the orphanage today? And they go, we weren't ready to teach, you know, and they all started panicking. And Edson took over. Edson's this huge, mongo, huge guy. He's about this tall. Um, and Edson just started saying, well, and just looked at all these kids. You know, kids are kids. And he just said, hey, he says, um, what do you guys pray for? And one girl says, well, we pray for knowledge. That's why we're at school. He says, okay, do you guys know how to spell knowledge? You go, no. So then he taught them. And then he said, what else? And they said, we should pray for wisdom. And then they said the word wisdom. And then he got them to learn how to do the word wisdom. And he was just kind of, you know, flying by the seat of his pants, rather well, in my opinion. And then he just stopped. And he said, hey, since we're talking about prayer, how many of you have needs today you'd like prayed for? And one little girl raised her hand. She says, I would love to be able to see better. I have bad eyes. And Edson says, okay, let's pray for you. And she was healed. You're saying, whoa, let's get a tent. And let's promote this guy. You say, how many people do you heal? I just want you to know that I visit the City of Hope occasionally and my name is not on a wall with a circle around it and a line through it that says, do not let this man in, he will ruin our business. There's no fear in the hospitals of Los Angeles of Bruce. You say, so you don't do healing. I've never laid hands on someone and they've been physically healed. I'm a lot like that synagogue ruler. She'd been there 18 years times 52 weeks times six days and she had never ever been healed by him and why was he indignant I don't know I wonder if that was part of it as I look if Jesus is to be my model this is intimidating to me very intimidating and how how does that come about so 
I notice that Jesus is still talking. So let me read you what else he says. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? And of course, kingdom of God, that's a theological word, which means blah, 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 blah. You never listen to those theological words, right? Kingdom of God, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but think about it. God is king where God reigns. So what if we translate it, and I think it would be legitimate, what is the reign of God like? What would it look like if it was present on earth? Now that's got my interest because it seemed that the presence of God, the reign of God, was in that synagogue service despite the idiot synagogue ruler. Despite that, his reign was there and his reign was extended to that poor woman. So he says, what is it like? What shall I compare it to? Then he begins, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air perched in its branches. It was such a large tree. And then he goes on. And then he says, and what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. And I'm thinking, well, you still haven't defined what the kingdom of God is. But he has. Uh, how many of you ladies make bread? Just, you know, no, don't buy it from the store. You actually make the dough, you know, buy the dough. And, okay. Do you put yeast in bread? What are, the, what are the, you know, like the ratios? Is it like pound of flour, pound of yeast? Why not? What, what are the proportions? A lot of dough. So it doesn't take, so maybe the point of this parable is it doesn't take much. And, and a mustard seed is a very, very small seed. And it grows into an enormous plant. So what is he maybe saying? What is it about the reign of God. How can the reign of God take place in Garden Grove? Because I know you want more. I sensed it the very first time I came here. In fact, when I got home, I don't mean to embarrass you in front of everybody. I, they said, where'd you go? So I, said, I told my wife, I said, I went to a church in Garden Grove and was utterly pleasantly surprised. I said, that pastor loves those people. Those people want to love their community. And the, you were doing that thing where you go in and... Um, help people fix people's houses. You did that last summer and you did the video. Well, I've told more people about that video. You've gotten a lot of press up there in the Monrovia, you know, foothill area. Utterly, utterly impressed. I know you want the kingdom of God to come to your people. How does it begin? What is it like? How do you compare it to? It starts small. Well, let me give you an example. My wife is uh, reading a book by... Um, this author and um, it's really helping her and she's been talking to me sometimes afterwards and I have read a larger volume of what she's read and so she kind of made me remember uh, some of the things I read in the larger volume that I got and one of the things I remember about this this woman's life her name was Amy 
was um, she one day, when she was 20, was in Ireland, so that got my attention, I'm half Irish, and um, she was a very, you know, she was, I think it was, gosh, it was probably at the turn of the century, last century, very, very conservative time in the Christian world, and this woman was in her long dress down to below her ankles and, you know, her starched clothes, and she and all the other girls that worked in the factory, and she was probably around 20, all went to church and all sat the same way and they all looked the same way and everybody had to be good and go to church and be good Christian girls. And she's standing there coming out of church, she and all the other gals that are her age that worked in the factory, and they're standing there and across the street on a windy, windy day in Northern Ireland is an old poor woman who's a beggar and she's got all these little packages in her hands. And her arms are loaded with them and the wind's blowing and one blows out and she tries to pick it up and another one drops and this another one scatters and nobody coming from church would dare go across the street and help her because then you'd be picking up packages and then you'd be working and then you'd be breaking the Sabbath. So Amy, like all the other good Christian girls, watches this poor beggar woman struggle. And then something snaps. And she goes across the street, knowing that she'll probably be severely rep- reprimanded by the leaders at church and probably never sat next to in church again by the other girls. And she picks up the package and kindly and lovingly helps the old woman across the street and gets her home. That simple little seed of kindness changed her life. Her name is Amy Carmichael. She eventually became a missionary, went to, I think she went to Japan or the Far East, and uh, after about a year and a half, she was transferred to India. She got there, and if you know anything about Indian culture, it's a very deep and a very rich culture, and she saw that, and um, one of her buddies became Indian, and the two of them, though, as they talked and she learned the culture, she began to slowly realize that most of the missionaries never learned Hindi. Most of the missionaries never left the missionary compound. So she went and met the Indians from India and got to know them. And then as she got to know the culture, she began to notice that in every major town was a temple. And the towns, these temples, were filled with little girls who somehow were taken when they were very young and made into some form of prostitute so many times and were violated so many times that when you looked into the eyes of one of these little temple girls, there was no soul. They had been abused and and destroyed, and it broke her heart. So she then began to inquire, where do they get these girls? Said, never, said, people said, we don't know. So she wouldn't give up. She kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually she figured out it must be the poorest of the poor families who can't feed one of their girls, so they sell them to the temples. And they probably sell them very young so they condition them and make them these mindless animals with all the abuse. And so she then said, well, where do they sell them and where do you, where does this take place? And they said, we don't know. Nobody knows. So Amy Carmichael, the Irish woman, went home, kind of talked with her her sidekick, and she went and got some oils and some various things, and she began to darken her skin so she didn't look Irish anymore, and she would make herself look really that beautiful olive skin, 
And then she would put Indian clothes on and risk being raped. They would go out at night to all the seedy parts of town hunting to where they sold the girls. It took her a year and a half and she found it. And then she started to show up every time they would sell a girl and she would outbid everybody and buy the girl. <laughs> Bring the girl home, put her in a wonderful Christian place, treat her like she was the princess of Iran, which all children are. In fact, she had a name for them. She called them her little jewels. And within a few years, she was raising 1,000 little girls. See, the kingdom of God starts small. For her, it started picking up a package on a windy day and risking being ostracized. That one act changed Amy Carmichael's life. She saw life differently. The kingdom of God can reign in us. Let me show you another example of this. Uh, go back over into chapter 7, just a few chapters back. Verse 36. It says in chapter 7, verse 36, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, I'm not only half Irish, I'm half Armenian, I'm, I'm half Middle Eastern. You say, well, you don't look very Armenian. I've had that said to me many times. Um, my sister has the beautiful olive skin that I used to always every summer try to get as suntan as I could so I'd look more like my grandfather. And, uh, you know, I always used to, you know, envy all the people who had olive skin. My sister had it, I don't. I look like a white person. Anyway, but um, um, I remember, you know, growing up, but part of being in the Armenian culture, because I loved my grandfather, I love my grandmother, is two and two is four, three and three is six, and hospitality is the king of the road. And so when I one day was talked into going to Armenia to teach, I was humbled by how hospitable they were. I realized one time when I ate dinner at a pastor's house after I preached for him that the money that he spent on my dinner was a month's wages. It just broke my heart. And I realized if I didn't eat a pork chop, I would offend the guest. If I ate two, the grandma and the little children in the next room would get none. And it was one of the most nervous meals I ever met. I ate. I eventually talked to an APU guy that showed me how to get around all that, um, Rick Gibbons, who I to this day deeply admire for how he does it. And uh, then one of the other guys in Armenia showed me how to do it in that culture as to where you can actually not impoverish them and let them still be the gracious hosts they want to be. But see, these Pharisees asked Jesus to dinner. That is so culturally correct. So Luke, in some senses, is praising the Pharisees for being, you know, gracious enough to have Jesus to dinner. And so when I read this word Pharisee, you know, I've been teaching the life of Christ for years now. I slowly began to look this up because when I grew up, the word Pharisee was kind of like a cuss word. You know, like if I came and said, but are you a Pharisee? You'd be pretty offended, huh? So, yeah, well... Yo mama, you know, and, and then we go at it, okay? So I looked this word up, and I began to slowly realize that Pharisee in those days wasn't a bad word. It stood for men, you had to be a man to be a Pharisee, 
who are married. Because in the Middle East, you don't trust a man who's not married because he hasn't taken the mantle of responsibility in marriage. I have a Middle Eastern friend that's a Syrian. And one day he came to me, he says, you have influence on my son, tell him to marry. I said, okay. He says, do you tell him to marry? Okay. He says, you wear the noose. (laughs) I said, what? He says, you wear the noose of marriage. It's around your neck. You wear it. And he says, you wear the noose of God. You are doubly noosed. (laughs) And then he looked at me and he says, and therefore you are doubly free. They really value marriage. You had to be married to be a Pharisee. So I thought, oh, this is kind of a cool thing they did. You also had to have a trade with your hands because in Exodus, I mean in Genesis 2.17, the humans were to tend the garden. And so all Pharisees thought all manual labor was honorable. And so Jesus was a, and Paul was a tent maker. And we'd be wise to listen to the Pharisees and honor those who work with their hands. I, 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 I rub shoulders with people who look down upon people who work with their hands, and I think they're blooming idiots. I think the Bible's against you. And besides, some of the most intelligent men I've ever met in my life don't have degrees. And, and the Bible, see, these Pharisees were not, and then I realized that the Pharisees believed in an afterlife of heaven and hell, and the Sadducees didn't. So what did Jesus believe in? Did he believe there was a heaven and a hell? Yeah. Jesus also believed in demons and angels. He kicked a demon out of the bent old woman. The Sadducees didn't. You see, the Pharisees were conservatives, conservative Bible readers. The Sadducees were the way today, modern-day complement of the liberals. Pastor and I would probably be, you know, castized or chastised as, oh, you conservatives. And we go, yeah, we believe the Bible's, the entire Bible's the word of God. And yes, we believe it in a heaven and a hell. Well, you're out of it. It's not popular anymore. And we go, no, we still believe it anyway. And uh, we do. And that's who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees believed all 39 books of the Old Testament were divinely inspired. The Pharisees, or the Sadducees, only the first five. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife. So did Jesus. Jesus was conservative too with the Bible, like the Sadducees, Pharisees, but the Pharisees somehow had the letter of the law and not its spirit. And so now when I read the Gospels, when I read Pharisee, I would read it this way. Now, Bruce invited Jesus to come to dinner. And so Jesus came and sat down at Bruce's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had a sinful life in that town, by the way, that means she's a hoe. Um, and if you don't understand what that is, um, see pastor afterwards. He's on vacation, but he'll answer that question. Okay. Um, sinful learned that Jesus was eating at, the, at Bruce's house, so she brought in an alabaster jar of perfume. And then as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
And when she wiped them with her hair, she kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when Bruce saw who had, when Bruce, who had invited him, saw this, perceived this, understood this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And see, I do believe in morality. I do believe in the sanctity of marriage. I do believe fornication is wrong. But how do you see fornicators? How do you see prostitutes? How do you see those who struggle with gay behavior? How do we see them? How did Jesus see her? How did we perceive with our eyes a woman like this? And of course, we conservative religious people, we are often guilty of trying to hold to the Bible and by holding to parts of the Bible, we deny the center of the Bible. And so, he judges Jesus and Jesus answers him. Watch this. Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Well, tell me, teacher. And probably Simon's thinking, yeah, dig out of this one, you loser. You're popular. Maybe you've done a few healings, but you're breaking the Torah. You hang out with lowlifes, and you're letting this woman touch you. And he begins. He says, two men owed money to a certain money lender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 and neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them would love him more, Jesus asks. And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you get an A. You've answered correctly. Now, my division head for years was a man named Bill Yarkin. Bill Yarkin's Jewish, also Christian, head of our Bible department for years. So when I had a problem and I needed to, you know, some kind of difficulty that came up with all the stuff, I sometimes would go knock on Bill's door and I'd say, Rabbi, Rabbi. And then I would go in and I would set the scenario before him and then I said, Rabbi, would you give me a reading? And he would just beam because he knew I then knew a little bit about Jewish culture, you know, and he was totally surprised. And then he would give me his reading. And I would say, thank you, Rabbi, you know, Rabbi, oh, great ones, for literally what it means. And he would beam again and then, you know, try not to fire me then, okay? You see, Jesus, by telling this story, made Simon the rabbi. This is pretty cagey by Jesus. He can think on his feet when under pressure. He's being judged by this Pharisee. So Jesus, in answering him, tells a story and lets, he says, how does it read to you? It's how they do Jewish stuff. So if you pick up the Mishnah, it's a Bible story. You tell a Bible story, then how does it read, Rabbi? And then Rabbi Jonathan says this, and Rabbi Simon says this, and it's how they did things. It's how they thought. It's, it's outstanding pedagogy. But Jesus, in the midst of his being attacked, makes this man the leader the spiritual giver of wisdom. And then Jesus compliments on him on his answer. An interesting way to debate, huh? 
And then watch what he does next. He turned towards the woman and said to Simon. So let's say you're the Pharisee. Okay, what's your name, by the way? Z. Z? Oh, okay. And let's say he's the prostitute. Okay. <laughs> Where would I have made eye contact, according to verse 44? Is that right? 44? Yeah. I'd be speaking to you, but the whole time I'm looking at who? I'd be looking at pastor. How important is it to make eye contact? Massive, isn't it? And sometimes we forget, huh? We make eye contact with our superiors. Do we make eye contact with the people who serve us when we go to a restaurant? Should we? Are they as valuable as us? How do we show that? Or how we treat them. I, I one time went to a country and I was, I was actually in Nigeria, not Nigeria, Kenya, and I went to a restaurant with a Christian college, um, what do you call those majors that are cross-cultural majors are called, uh, huh? Intercultural studies. She was intercultural studies. I won't tell you the school. It wasn't Biola, okay? And it wasn't APU. It was another school, and I want, a, a school not to be named. Um, actually, I've, I've forgotten it. It's one. It's such a bad experience. I've kind of, <laughs> you know, forgotten where that girl came from. And she was an intercultural student, and she treated the waiter, the black waiter in Kenya, like he was dirt. And I thought, sweetheart, it doesn't matter how many units you have in intercultural studies, not to realize that the man who is serving you is made in the image of God. I would probably think you should give him eye contact and treat him with great respect. And Jesus did that. He looks the woman in the eye and the answer is Simon. You say, well, if he was smart... The power is Simon. He should give eye contact to Simon. But Jesus is a different sort. He gives eye contact to the woman. And then he begins. He says, do you see this woman? Have you perceived who she is? Or are you like that guy later in chapter 13? Not to get embarrass you, but if someone who was sick 18 years got healed in your service, you'd be ecstatic. I know you would. So would I. So would you. She's been set free. What, what's, what's wrong with the, the leader who's mad because he broke a little rule that's not even in the Bible? What's happened? And see, Jesus says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my, she, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You don't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And you know, in three moves, here's Simon the judger, the self-righteous religious person with good theology and proper morals, and then there's the prostitute 
And in three moves, he says, you suck. (laughs) She doesn't when it comes to hospitality, a huge, huge thing in your culture. This woman's a winner, and you aren't. He has brilliantly done that. What's he doing for her psychologically? (laughs) He's giving her value. Did she mean to be a good hostess? No. Why is she crying? She's under conviction. Why is she wiping his feet with her hair? It must have been long. Why do women in the Middle East cover their hair? Do you notice that? You're in that the, it has various names. I, can, I think in Iran it's Perda. It has other names in other countries. The Oriental or Middle Eastern women cover their hairs because in that society, hair is considered to be sexually quite alluring. And so you cover your hair and only your husband sees your hair. Okay? So a prostitute, of course, is going to have beautiful hair because she doesn't have to work all day. She doesn't have to clean up after the kids. She doesn't have to do all the dishes and do all the washing. She doesn't have time to make her hair beautiful, but a prostitute does. And, and most middle class and lower middle class women, which the vast, vast majority of godly Jewish women were, did not own perfume. Only two classes of people owned perfume. The wealthy and prostitutes. And she's doing what with the perfume? And what's she doing with her hair? The tool of her trade. What do you think her hair looked like after she cleaned the feet of a man who wore sandals? What do you think they smelled like? Her hair. You know, because they didn't have cars in those days. They carried everything on donkeys. And when you put things in donkeys, things come out. And then all the streets were probably covered with that. And so your feet are. And she's washing his feet with her hair. She is repenting, isn't she? I had a buddy in Fresno who decided to take a church that was dying downtown and decided to reach out not to the white rich people who used to go there. He reached out to the neighborhood. And so eventually he had bulldog members coming, which in Fresno translates as the toughest and the meanest gang there is. And uh, began to reach out to these people. And he would preach repentance. And they say sometimes, because one of my buddies went and watched his Sunday night services, you'd come down to the altar after the service and guess what would be lined up on the altar? Needles and drugs. They'd come down to the altar and repented. They were giving up the tools of their trade. And I was thinking, oh, wow, what an exciting meeting to be in. And she's doing that. And watch what Jesus says about it. He says, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And he goes back to that little parable now. For she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. See, my friend Kevin had been forgiven a lot. So when he saw the drunk man in church, he was totally willing to reach out. And you say, well, what about that girl that you went to that high school retreat with that judged you for not knowing all the words and not singing everything? I don't know. Never talked to her. Don't think I really wanted to. And who knows what she was like. I I guess this was probably how she was like. Maybe she did not see well. 
Maybe she had never been allowed to look into the darkness and the evil in her own soul. And therefore, she did not know, did not perceive. Had maybe she been that privileged to have that perception, she would have looked over me and said, oh, this kid's probably an unchurched kid. So I'll help him. I'll be kind to him. She would have been like Kevin then. And see, the Pharisee, the Pharisee, he didn't see. Jesus says, she has sinned much. Jesus is very much against illicit sexual behavior because he knows what it does to the person who's involved in it. She sinned much, but she loves much. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And then it begins, the firestorm, just like the other story. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? Only God can. And, and this very issue actually is covered in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus forgives someone their sins and the Pharisees go crazy because Jesus is doing bad theology and teaching bad theology to the masses so they confront him. And he brilliantly answers their question. The logic and the rationality behind his, his answer is just breathtaking. But here, it's not the time to defend yourself. In this situation, you have a woman who is probably so reeling from her experience of coming and confessing, and she can sense the ugly looks that are coming out of these men's eyes towards her and the demeaning looks. And Jesus knows it's not time to defend myself. What's most important is her. So he quickly and carefully dismisses her. But notice how he does it. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, what is it you have to have to be able to please God? Faith. Hebrews 11, 6. 6, 11. 11, 6. She's got it. Do the Pharisees. They have good theology. They have good morals. They don't have faith. He's really complimenting her. He says, your faith has saved you. And then he goes, go in peace. Probably it sounded something like this. Hak shalom. Hak means go. Shalom, you've heard that word, right? Z, what's shalom? Peace. In Hebrew, it means a little bit more than what we mean by peace. It means harmony. And so in the Jewish sacrificial system, the last sacrifice always is the peace offering. We say it in English. In Hebrew, they call it the shalom or the sholamim. Because, see, the last thing you do before you go home after being in Jerusalem for several days and worshiping God is you then meet together as a family and you give part of the sacrificial animal to the priest in his family. You give part on the altar to God and you give part for yourself to consume in all your family and in hospitality you eat a meal before God and you leave in harmony in shalom beshalom and Jesus is saying the entire understanding of peace has now taken place before your eyes go in peace he said all is well I would like the kingdom of God to reign I'd like it to reign in my classrooms. 
I'd love for it to be, and I'd love to get calls from you and say, hey, it's beginning to spread. Here's my, my, my thought. I think it starts small. It starts with an Amy picking up a box, and it starts in one individual. It's always been that way. The great revivals that took place that basically built the Methodist denominations come from a man named Finney. And Finney started as, and he was an atheist lawyer. How more two evil ways can you be? (laughs) Not true, I have many good lawyer friends. But it started with one man who repented. And maybe he's calling you and I. Maybe there's something he's going to ask of Bruce in the days to come that'll take me out of my comfort zones, that'll make me do something I'm uncomfortable in doing so that I could help someone because it's just right to do. And as I do it, it begins. Kevin did the right thing. By the way, the man who tried to beat me up because I didn't do an altar call, the guy he brought to church... Um, after the service was spoken to by the Lord and wandered back to the back of the church where they always have a prayer room and he accepted the Lord. So the guy was going to beat me up for nothing. (laughs) But it's how it begins. And my prayer for you and my prayer for myself is may it begin. It'll start small. And you never, because nobody that day in Ireland knew what began when that Irish girl bent down and picked up a box. No one knew what had begun. It was hidden like the yeast. It was small like the seed. 